Hi, I'm Dr. Morbaja, astrodynamicist, space environmentalist, and associate professor of aerospace engineering and engineering mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Gannigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out more about the OPEX Society and what we can achieve together in your organization. Or just visit opexsociety.org. Thanks for joining us for today's show. The state of the Space Industrial Base 2021 report has come out, and it's been a year since we last talked to Colonel Felt, who is in charge of the Air Force Research Lab in New Mexico. He's in charge of the Space Vehicles Directorate. And so I wanted to catch up with him and find out what his thoughts are in terms of geopolitics, China, the big, hairy, audacious goal of the North Star for the Air Force Research Lab, and uh, what new developments that they're working on. So Colonel Felt, welcome. Okay, Colonel. So we're going to cover a lot of what you talked about at the State of the Space Industrial Base Conference earlier this year, which was not widely distributed. Uh, I'm very thankful to Dr. Gordon Ressler for making sure that I got a link to all those videos, including your talk, uh, so that I could keep up with what's going on, which is very important as a business leader. And I appreciate you coming on to do this very much. So in that talk, you described the U.S. position as, quote, tactically strong, uh, but strategically fragile. So I'd like you to expand a little bit more on what you meant there. Jason, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today and to summarize what we did at the space, State of the Space Industrial Base, our third conference. And we are actually planning to release the report from that conference on the 18th of November. So it's coming up soon. And uh, we'll be able to go into, you know, ex explain more details about what the conference attendees said at, at that time. But uh, the way I summarized the conference was, as you said, uh, the state of the space industrial base is tactically strong, but strategically fragile. And what I meant by the, those statements was that, that tactically in the near term over the next couple of years, we have a very robust space industrial base in the United States. Robust as measured in the dollars that are being invested, robust as measured in the innovations that we're seeing, robust as measured in the pace of capabilities that are being matured and developed and fielded, both commercially and on the government side of things. Uh, I mean, really, there's no time like it since the 60s. And I'm told that we might, this might be even more uh, exciting and, and, and robust uh, than, than in the 60s in terms of the development that we're seeing, because it's much broader than uh, just a government effort. So tactically next couple of years we're in a great place in the space industrial base and weathered covid great and uh, everything is looking good however uh, longer term uh, over the next 10 years and if you try if you look at our strategic our strategy and the the, the long term uh, um, competition that we're in with China, uh, I'm very concerned. We are in a very fragile state. And what I mean by that is that it could go either way. Uh, really, uh, we are against a competitor here 
that is very strategic in their thinking. Mm -hmm. They have a 50-year plan for where they're going in space, where they're going with these key technologies. They have an incredible amount of resources that they're putting towards uh, space technologies and space capabilities and military capabilities in general. Uh, and they're, so they're very deliberate about what they're doing. Meanwhile, we, are very, we, we don't have those strategies. We are very, uh, tend to be near-term focused with our investments, both on the commercial side of things and in the government side of things. And that might not uh, uh, end up the way we expect uh, long-term and we might be caught flat-footed long-term. So that's what I mean by strategically fragile. I don't think it has to be that way. And in fact, that's one of the main points of the report is that, hey, let's take this tactically uh, strong part of what we have and let's do some more strategic planning, some more forward thinking, some more futures, work to figure out where we want to be long-term, have some better strategic long-term plans, some better strategic long-term roadmaps, and then we can be tactically strong and strategically strong. And of course, that's where we want to be. So that's what I meant by that phrase. And I think you'll see that that is a theme of the report. And it's something that we uh, can fix and that we need to work on as a nation and as a DOD and as a Space Force and at the Air Force Research Lab. All right. Oh, excellent, Colonel. Thank you. Uh, I know the, the British have just done a, a department-wide strategic plan for space, and, uh, and that's different. You know, we had um, Dave Walker on, who was the Comptroller General of the U.S., um, had him on a couple times to talk about uh, how messed up that strategic planning is for the United States. You know, this is not China. We do not have an authoritarian regime which is able to impose uh, taxation and spending and stick with it for so long. You know, we can't do that that way here. We have politicians who are running for re-election the moment that they're elected, right? And uh, so they have finance problems. And we also don't have that, um, that strategic planning across the various departments, right? Uh, and, and that disturbs me, right? We need, we need more of that. Um, so I, I completely agree with you there. In the same talk, you mentioned uh, that you're hearing all the right words from from industry and defense and that, but and and the politicians, but not necessarily seeing the right investment. You pointed out that the budgeting really hasn't changed much uh, in the past five years. You you noted as an example, about twenty percent of the Department of Defense authority was for investing commercial or purchasing commercial goods and services, uh, and that's just stayed there. And maybe you were thinking that might uh, be raised. So. What are some ideas that you have for translating this idea into action for outreach, dialogue, partnerships? I don't even know what. Well, our form of government uh, historically is not uh, is is not good at strategic planning over multiple. Uh, decades, but what we are good is capitalism and setting up the right incentives for industry to innovate and achieve good outcomes over long periods. So that my recommendation to the government is that we facilitate rather than do everything. So we set up the right structure that has worked for us in the past, such as when we developed the you know, ocean sea commerce, when we, when the, the, Pan Am clipper ships uh, spread across the Pacific to, to China. That was all done by private industry, but facilitated by uh, you know important government decisions and a few small government uh, contracts, things like that. So I think that model works really well for us. It doesn't require an authoritarian, large government effort. It requires the right structure and the right incentives that then uh, frees pre uh, private industry and to be entrepreneurs. And we're really good at that. So that's the recipe for success. So what we need to do on the government side is figure out how do we set up that environment for success? 
And part of how we do that is by um, buying more of the goods and services that get developed by the private sector that are useful to the government. And there's no doubt that a lot of the new things that are being developed by the private sector are useful to the government. But on the government side of things, we're faced with a bureaucracy and a budgeting process and a requirements process that are very lethargic. And so it is difficult for us to quickly embrace new capabilities that, uh, that the commercial industry is offering, yet that's exactly what we must do. And so uh, on the government side of things, uh, reforming those processes, such as the requirement process, such as the budget allocation process, so that we still have accountability and we still are, are accountable for the funds that, that Congress appropriates to us, but we have some more flexibility and agility to go after these opportunities that the commercial industry has presented and perhaps that we spend 10 to 20% of our uh, budget in the Space Force on these commercial goods and services that are useful to us. That, sent, that has an incredible cascading positive effect because it sends the right value signal and the right value function to the entrepreneurs about what the government wants and needs. And it encourages additional investment in the sector. And it, it rapidly ramps up the pace of innovation for new technologies and new capabilities. So we see incredible positive results from that. It's like in the commercial SATCOM business where we buy a lot of the SATCOM that the DOD needs commercially. And we've done that for a long time because it meets our needs and the commercial providers are able to provide that at a, at a competitive price and, and, at, uh, and meet our needs in that way. Well, as other goods and services in the space, in the, in the space business world become available, that's a great model. And so that's, that's the model that we would like to see the Space Force pursue and the DOD more generally is to buy some of those commercial services from the commercial sector. Now, uh, again, in the report and at the conference, we talked about what's the right amount of that. Uh, let's just get started. You know, so I don't think 10% of the budget would be un unreasonable, uh, given when we look out there at what's available and what our needs are. There's a large intersection that is the opportunity space that we're not pursuing right now. And then the second part of your question gets to, well, if we are in this strategic competition with China, uh, the DOD is spending 1.9% of our budget on science and technology. Uh, you know, no uh, company in a, a fast-paced strategic competition would invest that little into their R&D of, of new products. And so we're faced with, <clears throat> well, what do we do about that? And if we want to stay uh, at where we are in parity with China, uh, much less not lose to them, uh, we need to do address that part of it. And we need to invest more money in new science and technology projects. And we need to invest it in smarter ways so that we can more agilely go after the highest you know, you know, bang for the buck or the highest ROI on those, uh, on those new investments, just like a company would do. So that's why we also at the uh, con conference advocated for additional investment in science and technology and new capabilities and new products to leverage all these new technologies that are being invented. I think that is key to our success. Again, the government doesn't have to do everything, but we've got to be good partners with industry and we've got to send the right demand signals to industry and um, then no one will beat us. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I like that uh, because I've studied a lot of the logistics in war and, and the history. Um, there's a couple of channels y'all should listen to, <laughs> like Drakenfels, who's excellent on the Navy. Uh, and, and yeah, we've seen this expansion and contraction in spending in history over time. World War One, you get a ton of spending and then it's over and suddenly everything contracts. 
And then during the 30s, we develop a torpedo that doesn't actually work. And then we go into World War II with a torpedo that bounces off or goes underneath the enemy ships or enters the hull and then the ships get to go back to port and get repaired and so there's a, a learning process there that's a little slow you know and very frustrating i'm sure for the submariners who were trying to get the thing to operate right um and i just bring that up as an example of that contraction and being very sluggish the bureau of ordinance not really doing its job or when it's come up that the torpedo doesn't work, they try and hush it up, right? It's, you know, who, who told you that, right? <laughs> Rather than trying to fix the problem of getting a product that works. So I think uh, I, I agree with you. There's also a kernel of activity that you're creating um, through this investment in commercial services and products, right? And we know that it's it's there's it's almost like gravity fashion and gravity right once we start putting energy into an idea other things will start clustering around it um and this can occur in a good and a bad way we'd see china starting to uh create a port uh, through through a trade mission or something and then suddenly uh there's a military base there because now they need to protect that right so but i think we could expect the same sort of thing in a positive direction with american investment uh, in these products and services, you start with a commercial uh, purchasing by government, and then more and more activity will get created around it. Uh, and as we've seen, I, I don't want to go on any longer, <laughs> but as we've seen in um, the commercial space industry, um, once, you know, we've had trouble finding a customer, right? Uh, that initial customer, that moving from zero to one, and this could be it. Anyway, I'll let you, I'll let you take a swing at it. I think those are really important observations, Jason. There's so much that we can learn from history. And mm -hmm. you talked about the, the lessons learned in the interwar years. And, and I'm also a big fan of the lessons learned during the Cold War yeah. about deterrence mm -hmm. and how in, in the nuclear space, we were able to deter right. a, a world conflict with another superpower mm -hmm. for, for over five decades. And, uh, and those lessons learned about deterrence are now directly applicable to the space domain because our, our adversaries have weaponized the space domain. It's just inevitable that there, that there can be a war in space, but it is not inevitable that there will be war in space. And so that's where those lessons of deterrence are super important, where we can start from a foundation of, of strength and able to be in, in, in deterring conflict because your adversary knows they won't be able to win in, the spa in a space war. And then from there, you can move into a, a regime of, you know, treaties and regulation and, and verifying compliance, uh, just like we did in the nuclear uh, age of the Cold War, those are all those same lessons are very applicable in the space domain. So what I'm trying to do in AFRL is develop technologies that will help us deter a conflict in space, which would be very destructive. So that's our overall strategy, I, I think, for a space war is don't have one. Uh, and the way you don't have one is by learning your lessons from history about deterrence and applying those lessons to the, to the space domain. And so the, the, the slight difference here is that the nuclear weapons were all owned by the government. And here we have a larger ecosystem of all these commercial providers and are they legitimate targets? There's a lot of things to think and talk about in terms of how do we deter conflict in space and make sure that we can uh, pursue the overall mission of developing space so that, uh, that you will be able to have new industry in space doing things that weren't previously possible but are now technically feasible. That's the overall vision for the nation or the you know the big hairy audacious goal for 
space is its development uh, and so the and eventual settlement. And so the, the DOD's role in that is just like it is in the other domains to provide the security and some of the enabling infrastructure that to enable that development. So whether it's asteroid mining or tourism or solar power beaming, or there's certainly a lot of ideas and they're all technically feasible. It's just a question of the timelines on which those will be pursued. Uh, those are the kind of things we wanna see in space, not war. And then those are the kind of things that the DOD can enable while we deter conflict and provide the enabling infrastructure to make the, those uh, that vision happen. That's what our goal is. Okay, Colonel, I, just to continue on what you said there about the big, hairy, audacious goal of the North Star for the DOD or AFRL, we've, we've seen this expansion and contraction and expansion and contraction is uh, about investing in, in uh, commercial space and a couple of times now and I, I i'm beginning to feel that we're getting into another contraction phase here it may have just been starting um fashion is such an important thing and the idea of the moment right we had two companies for almost 10 years i guess that were thinking about doing asteroid mining and planetary resources and deep space industries and they couldn't make it right so this is this is an off <laughs> off the page question here, right? That I just thought of. What what do you think has been the biggest constraint or thing holding back the development of these technological ideas uh, and and getting to things like asteroid mining or even space tourism, which, uh, in my opinion, is like ten years later at least than it than it could have been. I think the number one thing is logistics and especially the cost of access to space. Okay. So as the cost of access to space has, has plummeted, I mean, really it's down 90% already and headed down by another factor of 10 due to the innovations of SpaceX. And oh, by the way, there's 167 launch startups out there now. So there's a lot of people that have observed how important access to space is, but the benefit from the people that are doing the, 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 the asteroid mining or the new missions in space is the tremendously lower costs. Hmm. That innate, that just opens up the whole the whole business. It's like the railroads opening up the West for development and, and settlement. Uh, you could do a little bit with your covered wagons, but once you had railroads, it was the it was uh, you know full speed ahead. It's the same way in space. And so the access to space and the lowering of the costs, the making it more routine and uh, routine operations to access space. That's the key thing that's different now that uh, that I think will enable companies to make money in space. And that, of course, that's a key thing to make sure that the uh, that the economy doesn't collapse. Now, we don't need 167 launch startups, but that's just an example of entrepreneurism and people uh, attempting to innovate in this area that I think will be really good. And that'll consolidate down through, for, through market forces to the amount that we need. And we don't know for sure what that is. Uh, but as we have that kind of routine access to space, then you'll be able to do all these other things, build large structures in space when you need to, um, mine asteroids if that's what you want to do, settle the moon if that's what you if, if that's what you need to do, mine the minerals on the moon if that's what where you can make money. I think once the access the cost of access to space is is as low as it's going, uh, then you'll that's the key to enabling uh, all of these other missions in space. And so that's what our analysis has shown, and that's why I I um, believe we will have you know, um, companies failing in space and then we'll have consolidation and that's just good capitalism. Uh, but I also think you know, overall, we're gonna continue, we can continue to thrive. Again, I don't think the future is assured. I think it's fragile, but I think with some deliberate uh, 
effort and with continuing on this path that we're on of innovation and lowering the cost and commoditizing small satellites. By the way, cost of small satellites is down 99%. Uh, so that's why you're getting all these proliferated low Earth orbit constellations that are now affordable, which uh, the idea is not new, but the, uh, the technology is now there and the cost points are now there to make those things profitable. So, uh, so of course, business cycles will, will go up and down, but I think we're in a new era for space and I think that's a good place for us to be. Okay, excellent. So reduce or minimize the cost of getting out of the Earth's gravity well, <laughs> and, then, and then create some railroad tracks, basically, some, some logistics supply chain stuff up there. That's the recipe yeah. for success, and I didn't yeah. make it up. It's, it comes <laughs> right. from history, and, right. and as we opened it's up the all American the American way. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, I, I want to get your opinion on this. Um, would you say that um, in, in the DOD, being able to make faster decisions would lead to improvements. How, how valuable would that be? I think it's absolutely vital that we um, tame the bureaucracy so that we can be more agile if we want to uh, deter and beat China, if we want to stay ahead of them. We must do that. Uh, but uh, faster decisions by themselves are not enough. Uh, the Secretary of the Air Force at his AFA speech talked about how, yes, he wants fast decisions, but he also wants right decisions, okay? So uh, it's, it's, I often uh, talk about it in terms of, you know, in physics terms, like there's like speed and velocity and speed is how fast you're going, but velocity is how fast you're going and which direction you're going. And so what we want in the DOD is, is good velocity. And so uh, what I saw when, uh, it's very interesting when, when people give you new authorities and you can go faster in some areas, I saw some people uh, just go faster in the way they, the direction they were already headed. And that's not right. That is not what we need. What we need is more, more analysis, more wargaming, more thought, more that will, that will point us in the right direction that we need to, uh, to compete and, to, and defeat and deter China. And so the, if we can do that and go fast, that's what we, that's really the recipe for success. So yes, we need to go faster, but it comes with a, a caveat that we also need uh, better decision-making and better, uh, uh, you know, a little more thought put into the direction in which we're going because it's, it's changing rapidly. And even if you think you have the right vector right now and you have the right 20-year uh, plan right now, uh, you know, I, I love the quote by Eisenhower that says, uh, planning is invaluable, but plans are worthless. And what he meant by that is that the process of going through that planning process is, is, is wonderful in fleshing out where the direction you should be headed right now. But don't, don't get wedded to that plan and think you can just execute that for the next 10 to 20 years. And so if we do that, do the strategic planning, start going in that direction, but then remain agile enough to adjust course as needed. That's what we really need in the department. We need it in the requirements process, in the acquisition process, in the S&T process, in the, in the DevSecOps uh, going into operations process. Throughout the whole life cycle of our capabilities, that's the kind of things that we need. Okay. Yes, you do not want to speedily go into that wall over there. I want to make sure that we can. Uh, it's a, it's a funny joke, yeah. but uh, you know you yeah. you do see that sometimes. So yeah. All right. Uh, well, continuing that idea, it's, it I find it's easy and and even um, 
good marketing to run around like Chicken Little screaming that the sky is about to fall, right? Um, and, and if we take this to China, how big is a threat China really? I, I don't remember the China's the big bad thing on the block uh, being so loud three years ago, right? Uh, it wasn't, it didn't, outside maybe, maybe in the DOD it was, but uh, outside didn't seem to be. How, how big of a threat are they really? And what should we be watching for on the military side? Those are the really important questions that everybody is, is asking themselves right now. And I think from a strategic point of view, looking over the next uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, it would be impossible to uh, overstate the, the, the threat of China as our, as our peer competitor. And uh, we need to be very focused on that. They are very focused on the long game and the, and the long-term strategy of, of being a rising power. And, uh, and, and they will do what they need to do to make that vision happen, uh, but they're patient. I mean, they don't have to do it this year. They don't have to do it next year, but the, they're on this long-term path. So when you look at the strategic view, uh, there's, there's no greater threat to our, uh, our, 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 uh, world uh, position, no greater threat to our values and our, and our way of life. So I, I think you have to start with that. But then from there, I, I, I go to, well, you have to balance, you know, the risk you're willing to take in the near term with that, that long-term concern. And uh, Eric Felt's opinion, we often get a little too focused on the near term and to the detriment of the, the longer term vision and thinking. And that could be bad for us. So we need to balance that. We need to balance the near term. Uh, I mean, really, we want to deter China tonight and we want to deter them in 2030 and we want to deter them in 2042, right? So that requires a balanced, um, uh, balanced thinking, balanced investment to make sure that our portfolio of capabilities that we have relative to what they're going to have in each of those time periods is, um, is sufficient so that in their deterrence calculus, they will come to the conclusion that, uh, you know, yes, I don't want to you know, uh, provoke the, the U.S. into war today. Let's keep working on it, on, on our capabilities for another few years. That's what deterrence is all about. And so uh, the other thing that is really important when looking at um, a peer adversary like, like China is that um, the threat is a combination of capabilities and intent, okay? You, uh, if you just have capabilities, but you don't plan to use it for evil, that's okay, right? Uh, but, and, and I'm simplifying things here, but if you don't have capabilities and you have evil intent, then uh, that's probably okay too. If you do something, we'll be able to, to quickly counter it. But the, the, there's some important things to remember, and that is that capabilities take a long time to mature and develop. Intent can change overnight, and it's easy to conceal your intent. It's easy to change to change your mind uh, quickly on intent. And so we really, in the DoD, when we're talking about deterrence, focus on capabilities. And so, uh, for example, uh, if if the Chinese activity on the on the moon uh, is all for peaceful purposes, uh, that that would they have those capabilities. And their intent, at least right now, is the peaceful uh, exploration of space. We still are concerned because the intent can change quickly, and we, and if it does, we need to have an answer to that. And we can't have an answer that takes up uh, ten years to to um, to develop. So we have to have our own capabilities uh, and our own intent uh, in this calculus that in order to uh, to prevent and deter the conflict that we want. So threat uh, is is capabilities plus intent and um, and even if and the intent can change quickly so 
That's why I think we're so concerned about China. You're right that we weren't three years ago. Uh, I think there was a, a big awakening as we as we wrapped up the, the global war on terror that, uh, oh, there's a new kid in town. Um, and really, if you do look at the Chinese, at the capabilities side of, of China, it's absolutely incredible how quickly they are uh, growing that and uh, and the, the, the risk of not being concerned enough is way greater than the risk of being too concerned. So I think right. that's the calculus that you see in the, in, in the DOD. And I think it's the right things to be thinking about. Okay. So I'm hearing, we don't want to trip. We do not want to stumble, right? And we need to make sure that we're facing the right direction. Uh, I, I read a lot and I listen to a lot about geopolitics and, and where China is coming from. Uh, I know enough about the history of China to know that they've been knocked down and kicked around a little bit. And when you're getting back up from an experience like that, I would expect you to walk around flexing your muscles a little bit and letting everyone know that you're not here to be punched in the face and robbed from anymore, right? So I, kinda, I get that part of it. Um, and then looking at it from what you were saying, when somebody's got a capability, you can't ignore it, even, even though you may know their intent is pleasant right now right uh, it may you know there may be a, a change in in leadership or something and then uh, suddenly the whole direction has to, to shift it's right. very we difficult do not, i do not think uh, you know china's behavior is at all irrational i mean yeah. as you say i think right. it's actually very very deliberate mm -hmm. and so uh, that that that's a good thing in terms of, mm. of deterrence because I think they're a very rational actor. And so that mm. lends itself to deterrence, treaties, diplomacy, all right. of the tools in the tool book that again, we, uh, we uh, used very effectively during the Cold War. Right, yeah, I don't think it would be like Nazi Germany or something fighting to the end, right? Because that's, that's, if we're going down as the leadership, let's take everyone with us, right? Which was the attitude of that particular. I think they party. realized that would not be in their best yeah. interest. And so, yeah. so, uh, so they'll and figure it's not out our something. best interest either. Right. However, uh, from, from the reading and listening that I've done, um, it is very difficult as far as the professors that I listen to, <laughs> to discuss to understand uh, what great powers want, because as soon as their capabilities improve, their vision improves, right? And they go, oh, we could do this. Let's, let's run over here and do this. So don't beat up your leaders too much, folks, on our side, because they're having to think ahead and react and, and do things at, at a very uh, high rate of speed. It is, it is very challenging. Um, I, I personally would like to be involved in these kinds of discussions, and make sure that everybody doesn't kill themselves. And I've got maybe 25 more years to do it. <laughs> but, uh, it's, a, it's an area of tremendous interest to me. So, Colonel, let's finish up with this. What new uh, developments at, at AFRL in New Mexico, where you this is your directorate, uh, can you share with us what's happening that uh, you can tell us about? Well, there's an incredible portfolio of the science and technology activities that are going on every day. And I, there isn't a day that goes by that I'm not impressed by the, the new invention of one of our scientists or engineers or the new milestone that a program reaches. Uh, one of our programs that I'm very excited about, uh, it's, it's called SPIDER. It's our space solar power beaming technology demonstrator. Again, this is one of those ideas that uh, Jerry O'Neill talked about in 1970, uh, beaming power from space as a, as a part of our, of our uh, you know, energy portfolio. And it just wasn't uh, technically feasible or affordable uh, until now. And so now we have this to, uh, with technology program to, to basically 
show the basic technology feasibility, and then it'll be a question of economics for entrepreneurs to go run with it uh, when the time time is right. And last month we had the first light of the of the tile, and I call it light, but it really it's it's solar light coming in, and then RF energy going out, and showed that basic technology works, and that is one of the three uh, key enabling technologies to get to solar power beaming uh, at, a, at a militarily uh, meaningful operational level. So I was very excited about that. It's a very big milestone for the program. Uh, just one of many milestones that we see across all of our programs. And so there's that one. Uh, we are about to, in December, we are gonna launch six space experiments, which is the fastest pace of experimentation that we've ever had in AFRL. Again, I think that's enabled by the, the dramatically lower barriers to entry to get things to launch, the commoditization of small satellites. It enables us to do a lot more experiments than we used to do, and it, it enables everybody to do a lot more experiments than we used to do. So we have six uh, uh, payloads and, and satellites launching uh, in the, within the next month. Uh, that will be very exciting. It's just a whole bunch of different technologies ranging from uh, communication things and how do we get to the internet of space, internet in space and to uh, in space environmental sensing monitors and new ways of doing that, uh, on-orbit processing and how do we get to more autonomy in space. Um, all of the basic capabilities and they're all maturing very quickly. And so I'm excited about the month of, of launch and the month of great experimentation that, that's coming up for us. And, and we're not stopping there. Again, it's just a lot easier to do these experiments today. And the more experiments we can do, the faster we can learn, the faster we can innovate, the faster we can develop these new technologies and new capabilities. So it's a very virtuous cycle. So we're headed into this period of increased experimentation on orbit. And I think that's going to be super exciting. I think our, our challenge will um, there will be just maintaining a appropriate, you know, speed with discipline. I mean, we talked earlier about speed not being enough by itself, but um, making sure that even when you have a lot of things going on, that it's not frenetic activity, but very deliberate and disciplined activity. That's how we end up with the right outcomes and then how we end up not, uh, you know, derailing ourselves in some of these experiments. So that's the challenge I've given to the organization here and they're stepping up and embracing it fully but uh, it's just part of why this is such an exciting time in space uh, why i'm so excited to be here with you today to talk about afrl science and technology as it fits within this larger ecosystem of the space renaissance that we're part of today so those are some of the things that are on my mind i can't wait to do those experiments and see what mm -hmm. we learn Excellent, excellent. Well, I'll have to catch up to you sometime in the future to find out <laughs> what happened. I don't know if that's six months or a year or what from now. We'll talk about that a little later, maybe. But uh, I appreciate you doing this, Colonel. And uh, it, I guess people can just go to the, the AFRL website to find out more. They can. We have uh, a very uh, forward-leaning you know, public affairs posture because we want to share what we're doing. I think that that encourages others to innovate in space. And there's, there's a lot of information out there about our technologies and our projects and things that are going on. And I fully encourage people to go to that website. And there's also links there where you can connect to our experts in various fields. So if you want to be doing, if you have a new idea in uh, on-orbit computing, uh, you can find the right POC at AFRL to talk to and collaborate with on that particular technology area. So do, I do encourage that as our entry point in day for all. Excellent. All right, Colonel Felt, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Jason. My pleasure. Do you know what your big, hairy, audacious goal is? Do you know what your North Star is? 
You know, at Cold Star Tech, we help companies with their strategy and achieving operational excellence in execution, doing what you do. And I love the confluence or the intersection of three areas, time-based critical mission, culture of compliance, rules. These are very good, actually. A lot of people think rules are bad. I think they're great because things are clear. And the third area is the desire to be the best. Now, you may think that's obvious, that last one, but I got to tell you, it's a rarity out there. Most CEOs, presidents, leaders are happy with good enough. Are we making some money? Good enough. They're not interested in excellence and execution, being the best. Look, you know who my ideal client is? Somebody who I want to talk to? I want to talk to the guy who's second best. Second best in his field. And is burning, irritated, angry even, frustrated that they are not achieving as much as they could and they want to be number one. If you're in that kind of position, we should speak. Go to coldstartech.com and book a call with us. Thanks for listening.